Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. My name's Corporal David Higgins, and I used to be a member of a six-man National Guard unit. We were stationed in the deep wilderness of Washington State for a routine training exercise. It was supposed to be an uneventful excursion through the woods, but it quickly turned into the most terrifying ordeal of my life. The first sign of trouble was when our compasses went haywire. Every direction pointed north, and our GPS units were equally useless, showing us in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. We were officially lost in an uncharted forest. Then came the noises, deep, resonating roars that echoed through the otherwise quiet forest. The trees would shudder, leaves trembling as if in fear of the creature that stalked us. We would sometimes catch sight of a silhouette, a massive figure moving with an unnatural agility for its size. Our first encounter left three of us injured and one, Private Jackson, missing. All we found of him was a trail of blood leading off into the darkness. The creature was smart, too smart for any regular animal. It seemed to understand our tactics. 
often outmaneuvering us or laying traps that would separate us further. We were no longer hunters in these woods. We were the hunted. As we fought for survival, we stumbled upon an abandoned government outpost, hidden deep within the forest. It was here that we discovered the truth. We found documents, videos, even samples, all pointing to a horrifying reality. This creature was real, and the government knew about it. They'd been tracking multiple creatures across the country for years, keeping it all under wraps. In the end, it didn't matter what we discovered. One by one, we were picked off. Sergeant Reynolds went next, then Corporal Diaz. Lieutenant Mills managed to wound the creature, but it only seemed to make it angrier. It took him and Private Connolly in one brutal swoop, leaving only me. I don't know why I survived. Maybe the creature had had its fill. Or perhaps it wanted a messenger. I was found three days later by a couple of hikers, delirious and half dead. But I remembered everything. I'm sharing my story now. Not for sympathy, but as a warning. There are things out there in the wild. Creatures we don't fully understand. And some of them are better left alone. My girlfriend, her father, and I were parked on the bank of the Chattahoochee River. My girlfriend's father was sitting on the hood of the car with his fishing pole in front of him. He was nightcat fishing. While we sat there with the car lights shining across the river, my girlfriend and I were sitting in the front seat just making small talk, honest, when all of a sudden I heard the most horribly incredible scream coming from my right side to set the scene. Our car was parked about two feet from the water on the bank. Off to my right, about sixty feet, was where the foliage began. Very swampy, very thick, and very hard to walk through. About forty feet further up the bank, which can't be seen from our car because of the foliage, is a huge oak tree. I'd have to guess that the tree had about a fifteen-foot circumference. Massive. About ten feet up the tree is a huge branch that went about twenty feet out over the river. My friends and I would climb the tree and jump or dive into the river, at least once every couple of weeks or so. During one occasion, there were about nine of us standing on this branch attempting to make it move. We barely made it do anything, let alone shake. Anyway, back to the car. As I heard the scream, my body instantly went into what I think was shock. As I turned to my right, slowly... With all my hair standing straight up, we heard the next sound. A2. 2. My feeble attempt to describe the sound of that huge branch I mentioned earlier that was shaking due to something gigantic jumping off it into the water. The splash that came next was equally as horrific. All we did was just sit there in shock. Waiting. I don't know why. Staring at this point straight ahead at the water. My guess is that we were waiting for the thing to float into our headlights. We waited and waited and waited, and all of a sudden an object, black, long, I would guess at least nine, ten feet, floated into our headlights and stopped. Please keep in mind that this action was deliberate because it was floating downstream. We stared at it forever, it seemed until it opened its eyes, two huge balls of red reflecting off the headlights of our car, I imagine. Lightning looked at us, 
My girlfriend's father at this point put the car into reverse, and we sped off. Extremely terrified. 1982. My second encounter, April, my girlfriend and I were driving back from our senior prom. Georgia, Chattahoochee River border area. Our high school was 37 miles downriver way, out in the boondocks. Anyway, as we were driving back home, we came to a flat two-mile section of road that had a slippery when wet sign. Because we were tired, sober, with road hypnosis, the sign reflection caught our attention, she told me after. As we came closer to the sign, something moved or reflected as we came closer, getting our attention. About 100 feet away, with our car lights fully shining on the it, we saw this massive black creature leaning on the sign. The top of the sign, I guessed to be about 10 feet. Whatever this creature was, all we could see was the top of the chest and down, about 10 feet of the creature. We couldn't see the head. It just stood there. We could see the massive muscles, most in rippling detail, shiny black fur, standing with intelligence, if you can understand that term, etc. We sped up all the while screaming at each other, scared to death. A mile down the road, my left rear tire blew out. I drove seven miles for the first house with a light and called my father to come out and help us. When at this home, we talked with a few of the people that were there. They were having a party. We were told a couple of stories about a missing hunter. Animals found gutted or with their head missing. A lot of strange screams in the night, etc. First, I must say beyond a shadow of any doubt that this was no hoax. The costume alone would have cost thousands and thousands of dollars to create. Second, the people that live in the area are extremely poor. As a matter of fact, the home that we drove up to after our tire blew had light seeping through the cracks in the siding of the house while it sat on cinder blocks. Very poor people. We went camping in Virginia a few years ago. Throughout the evening we could hear what sounded like some sort of exotic bird 150-200 yards away and it was loud. It started getting late and the fire was winding down so we decided to turn in. We each had our own tent, and I got bed down and broke out the Kindle to read a bit. About 45 minutes later, I could hear something walking around my tent. Didn't give a second thought as I grew up in the country with deer, possum, raccoons, etc. Then all of a sudden, whatever that bird was, let off one of those piercing calls about 12 inches away from my head through the wall of the tent, and I about shit myself. The fear went away quickly once I realized it was the bird, but it scared me so bad I was laughing at myself. My name is Sergeant Oliver Grant, and I am a member of the National Guard unit that was dispatched to Yellowstone National Park. The reason for our deployment, a series of brutal and inexplicable attacks on park visitors, the kind of stuff that would make your blood run cold. As we plunged deeper into the wilderness, we started noticing strange symbols carved into the trees. And in a secluded cave, we found ancient paintings depicting a beast of monstrous proportions. A creature straight out of a nightmare. The locals called it the Wendigo. The attacks escalated, each more horrifying than the last. 
It was clear that we were dealing with something far from ordinary. We were in its territory now, and it was hunting us as much as we were hunting it. Each night, the forest echoed with its chilling howls, a sound that could freeze your soul. We could see its eyes, glowing ominously in the darkness, watching us. It was a test of our courage, our resilience, and, for some, their sanity. In a desperate attempt to end the terror, we used the legends and clues from the cave paintings to track the beast. We set a trap using ourselves as bait. It was risky, but it was the only shot we had. Then, one dreadful night, it attacked. The Wendigo was a horrifying sight, a twisted fusion of man and beast, standing on towering hind legs. Its eyes, cold and merciless, glowed in the moonlight. It was chaos and fear, but amidst that one man stood brave and unyielding, Park Ranger Tom. Tom fought the creature with everything he had. In the end, he managed to drive a flare into the beast's heart. It let out an ear, splitting howl before it finally fell. We thought it was over. But before we could even catch our breaths, government officials descended upon us. They took the Wendigo's corpse, warning us to keep our mouths shut. The proof of our encounter with Tom's heroic act was taken away, leaving us with nothing but the scars of our ordeal. We returned as heroes in our hearts, survivors in our minds. But officially, we were just National Guard troops who had finished a routine deployment. The world might never know the truth, but we will always remember. Remember the horror, the bravery, and the legend of the Wendigo that was all too real. As a park ranger, I had always taken pride in my knowledge of the wilderness and ability to handle whatever Mother Nature threw at me. But nothing could have prepared me for the night. I found myself trapped in my station during a violent storm with a pack of wolves on my tail. The storm had rolled in suddenly, bringing with it torrential rains, hurricane, force winds, and an eerie darkness that enveloped the park. I had been out on patrol when it hit, and I quickly retreated to the safety of my station. Little did I know my sanctuary would soon become my prison. As the storm raged outside, I noticed movement in the shadows just beyond the reach of my station's meager lighting. At first I dismissed it as my imagination playing tricks on me, but as the night wore on, I became increasingly certain that I was being watched. It wasn't long before I caught a glimpse of my pursuers. A pack of wolves, their eyes glowing with a sinister hunger as they stalked me from the darkness. I knew I was no match for these supernatural creatures, and with my resources quickly dwindling, I would have to rely on my wits and knowledge of the wilderness to survive the night. I quickly went to work, using my knowledge of the park's layout to my advantage. I set traps and obstacles throughout the station, hoping to buy myself some time and keep the wolves at bay. As they closed in, I could hear their guttural growls and the sound of their claws scraping against the walls of the station. My heart pounded in my chest as I raced through the station, narrowly avoiding the snapping jaws and slashing claws of my relentless pursuers. Each time they came close, I managed to outsmart them, using the terrain and my knowledge of their behavior against them. As the storm began to subside, I knew I had to make my move. 
With the wolves temporarily distracted by one of my traps, I seized the opportunity to slip out of the station and into the now-dying storm. I scrambled through the woods using every ounce of my wilderness expertise to navigate the treacherous terrain and evade the wolves hot on my trail. As the first light of dawn broke through the storm clouds, I felt a surge of hope. I knew that daylight would weaken the wolves, and with my knowledge of the park and my unwavering determination, I managed to put enough distance between myself and my supernatural pursuers. Exhausted but alive, I emerged from the woods as the storm finally passed, leaving behind a world forever changed by the knowledge of the horrors that lurk in the shadows. And although I would continue my work as a park ranger, I knew I would never again underestimate the power of the unknown and the darkness that lies just beyond the edge of the light. My two friends and I were deer and elk hunting. I had been hunting alone for deer while my friends went after elk. At the end of the second day, we had decided to all hunt together and go after a small herd of elk that they had been pushing around. The general area consists of a large meadow approximately one one-half miles, long times three-fourth miles wide. It is surrounded by mountains approximately. Five hundred feet higher than the meadow floor, we were to hunt the west end of the meadow and up into the mountains. Upon reaching our spot, we located the elk feeding through a small field to the south and about halfway up. Friend one was going to head straight up and cut southeast through the field. Brandon and I headed southeast from the beginning, but stayed low. Upon reaching the east side of the field, we headed straight up and waited for friend one to push the elk to us. Brandon set up about 100 yards above me on the trail. After about 20 minutes of waiting, I heard a call coming from the west side of the field. I assumed this was friend one making his way to us. To me, it sounded like the type of call an animal makes when it is alarmed. This really bugged me. It was not the soft, reassuring cow call that I thought he should be making. The sound was very rhythmic. You could have played a tune to it. This was also very annoying. I thought you are overcalling. Shut up already. Just about this time, Brandon lets out a couple of bugles, so I figured that he had friend one in sight. The call came into the field and then abruptly turned south up the hill and then turned east again. It called the entire time. It would have gone almost exactly in, between Brandon and myself, if it kept the same course. I was glassing the field trying to see friend one, but I saw nothing. I know that I was looking directly at where the call was coming from, but there was nothing to see. This probably took about ten to fifteen minutes. Then the call stopped. I figured Brandon and friend one had met up on the trail, so I started to head down as it was getting pretty dark at this time. About twenty yards down, I heard a sound behind me. It was Brandon coming down. I stopped and waited. I asked him where friend one was. He said that he had not seen him, but that the elk were now on their way to the next county. Then I asked him if he had heard the call come across the field. He said no. I started to explain the sound when it started up again. Now it was across the trail to the east. It must have waited for Brandon to pass, then crossed. I shut up real quick so he could hear it, but it stopped again. They had started again, but this time it was quite a ways away. He thought he had heard it, but could not be sure. 
I jokingly said something about the stick Indians trying to lure us off in the woods. I have never heard a call like this in the woods before. Never. It was fairly low in tone, like an owl, but it had a real hollow sound to it. It reminded me of those blow-pop whistles that you had when you were a kid, only stressed or alarmed. That is the only way I can explain it. We started walking back to the truck. About halfway there, we noticed that friend one was already there. We could see the interior lights on. We asked him how the push went, and if he had seen the elk. He said no. Then I asked him if he had heard the call in the field. He said no, and that he hadn't even made it to the field before coming down. Brandon and I left it at that. It is important for me to stress that at no time did I feel in danger. Remember that for most of this time I'm assuming that it is my friend messing up our evening hunt. A few days later I called up Brandon and asked him if we could go back in there. I told him I thought there was a good chance of Bigfoot being in that area. He said that was funny because he had gone back in there to hunt those elk again and something strange happened to him. He was back in the field only at the top this time. He was planning to cut it straight down the middle. As he started in, he heard a sound that he described as someone taking a baseball bat and smacking it as hard as possible against a tree. He thought it was a woodpecker at first, but it was too loud. And like the call, it was rhythmic and too slow for a woodpecker. Deer or elk antlers were out of the question. As he continued further into the field, it suddenly got faster. The sound was coming from some dense forest to the east of him. At this point, he stopped, turned, and exited the field. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Choosing to hunt on a course that would take him back to his truck. On the way, he entered a smaller field, which was covered with molehills. In one of these, he found a track. It was not much longer than his, but it was easily three or so inches wider. Brandon wears an eleven. He got pictures and said that it would have been castable. He said it could have been a bear track, but was not entirely sure. He then went on to tell me that the elk we had pushed the other day had acted real strange. He didn't think much of it until now. When he had got above me on the trail, he saw the elk below headed down the field towards the place where friend one should have been. They suddenly stopped, did a ninety turn, and ran back up the hill. The elk had been calmly walking. This is when he tried calling to stop them. I have listened to the calls on your site. None of them match exactly. The Snohomish calls are very close, but this was deeper. Your calls are intermittent. The sounds I heard were as steady as a drumbeat. The Duke of Edinburgh Award, Outdoors Expeditions Program in the United Kingdom. Director at my school told me once he was out on an expedition in Papua New Guinea with five capable teenagers doing the gold award. Tube tier, get to meet royalty to receive the award, etc., and an ex-special heir. 
service man to help the guys. They had to get a local guide to help them through the jungle. One morning, several days into the expedition, the guide isn't there when they wake up along with their maps and satellite phone. This was a few years ago, so no DPSEs. They quickly come to terms that they are screwed. They have at best four days of supplies. It would take six days to go back the way they came. I remember the Dover director telling me it was the only time he has ever seen the Special Air Service guy in true Special Air Service mode. He usually fooled around a bit. I'm fairly sure they followed a nearby river for a day or so and found a group of local fishermen purely by chance. The fishermen took them to a more major town and they sorted themselves out from there. I can't imagine how scary it would be to wake up six days of hiking into the middle of a jungle with essentially nothing but a compass and a few days' supplies. Just to note, this was quite a long time ago, before a truly strict set of rules to do with Duke of Edinburgh were established. I can't remember fully, but I think the guide's brother was badly ill. After calling the hospital with the phone, he found his brother had only a week or so to live after a sudden bad turn in the illness. He left without a clear head in the middle of the night, forgetting to take the maps out of his pack. I think the team got a special mention in the award ceremony at Buckingham Palace, and the expedition leader got some sort of award for getting them back safely. When I was three, I had my first dream that I can remember. I was in a single room, tiny house furnished with a single round white table and a white chair, on the chair was a blue vase with a single daisy, one small square window with typical panels. Then there is an earthquake, shaking and destroying everything. I was terrified until the door rang. I answered, and then a tall figure in a black coat, hat, and no face would be there hiding a basket of kittens. I have always loved cats, so I gladly accept, then woke up. I had the same dream every single night until I was about 13. That dream, he didn't have a basket of kittens, he had a knife and killed me. I remember feeling it, like in my body, and after I was dead he would murmur things to himself and I could hear him dragging my body, so my dreams would turn into getting killed by him every night in different ways. They were the same twice. Fast forward to 25, I met a shaman. His name is Ron Solar. Really interesting guy. He gave me holy water from the Nile and did a bunch of blessings and taught me how to cast him away as he has dealt with people who experience it before. Now, 30. One, I haven't had a dream where I was killed, but sometimes if I'm feeling upset, sad, vulnerable, he makes appearances in my dreams. Side note, dreams are awesome if you aren't getting killed. After speaking with several people and trying to gather a better understanding, it seems like this energy, spirit, demon, whatever is it, attaches to your vulnerability. I clearly remember having my first dream the same time I was saved by a babysitter and no one believed me. The assault continued till about 11 years old. It's just my experience with it. I always feel like a fool talking about this because... I know it sounds ridiculous, but I also feel a sense of fear when I think about it. I'm going to try and explain this as best I can remember. 
This happened when I was in high school, probably around 16, 17, and I am now 27. So please forgive me if I can't recall every detail. At the time, I had a girlfriend. There is a hip little neighborhood in our city called Kensington that we would always meet up at to spend time together. She lived far north in the city, and I was pretty far south. Kensington was right around the middle and a nice place to hang out. We were walking away from the train platform, almost a full block away, when a man in a suit comes running at us with a panicked look on his face. Frantically, he says, Can you help me? My wife just went into labor, and I was supposed to meet my sister at Starbucks in a couple minutes, but I need to run to the hospital. Can you please bring her this bag? And holds out a plastic shopping bag. I believe it was for the makeup store Zara. My girlfriend kind of nudges my arm, obviously thinking this is a little sketchy, but I say yeah, for sure. He tells me her name. We will say Sarah. Thanks me and runs straight for the train platform. Starbucks is a few blocks away, and as we walk, my girlfriend is saying, This is creepy. What if we're drug mules, etc.? When I realize that the bag is strangely light, I tell her and she suggests we look inside. I am conflicted by this, but concede that it's reasonable seeing how odd this whole situation was. When we look in the bag, all that is there is a couple of crumpled up receipts and another crumpled up bag. We open second bag and there is nothing inside. We are freaked out considering just turning around and not going into the Starbucks, but my curiosity has gotten the best of me at this point. We walk the remaining block or two, and as I walk into Starbucks, I call out Sarah. A woman stands up, yells very emphatically, Thank you so much. I have to go to the hospital now to be there for the birth, but I appreciate this so much. Blah, blah, she throws her arms around me in a huge hug, and then runs out the door, and that's it. I looked up social experiments TV shows, and every couple of years I remember and Google to see. If anyone has experienced anything similar, but nothing, never have had a reasonable suggestion that makes sense to me, and it's just something that bothers me when I think about it. These weren't university-aged people. These were adults in their late thirties or forties at least. So I don't think it was a school project or anything. Any idea what this could have been for, what the purpose of the whole interaction was. I live in suburban West Virginia, with a forest behind the line of houses on my side of the street. Yesterday, I went to put clothes in my closet, and I heard a very faint but clear pack of canine animals barking, yelping, and crying all at the same time, different sound from each canine. Could easily be coyotes looking for others, but I'm also insanely paranoid the fact my dog was barking more than usual throughout the late afternoon was also concerning. The sound slowly faded away, however, and just disappeared. I asked my friend today in class who's in the same area if he heard the same pack of animals crying, making those noises. He did, and it reassured that I wasn't crazy. He's also four blocks away from me, around an eight-minute walk, which concerned me because I'm also not sure how far a normal animal cry travels. 
He seemed to be a little suspicious of it as... Well, if anyone knows anything, please do let me know if I'm being stupid or not. It all started when I and my friends started our nightly weekend ghost hunt in the summer of 2001. We gassed up the car, stocked up on smokes and Mountain Dew, and head off on the back roads of a small town named Canton, Illinois. We'd been driving for about seven hours, just messing around, and it was getting to be light outside. We were driving around this plot of land owned by the state and used for what I think is waste disposal in old abandoned strip mines. The area is very well guarded and secure. All one can do mainly is drive around the perimeter of the land via old access roads. I was driving, and she was in the passenger seat. It was about 6 a.m., with plenty of light when, out of the corner of my eye, I caught this huge black mass. I stopped the car, pulled over, and got out quick for about what seemed like forever, and only 20 seconds or so we saw these enormous black birds flying down onto the ground. The ground was elevated here and there, so we could not see them land, however. We estimated that they were at least 15 or more feet in wingspan. We figure maybe ultralight, those not familiar, are large prop-driving gliders that can hold no more than one man and fly pretty low. Then we realized they were far too low to the secured land. We guessed then cranes or vultures, which wingspans spread a good distance. Still, these were huge, like the size of a glider. We drove around for like two hours, trying to find higher ground to view their landing and no such luck. The place is tight with gates, so we couldn't gain access. All I can say is my description of them. Wingspan. Fifteen, twenty feet easily. All black feathers and gliding in for a landing. They appeared to resemble very unusually large crows. I decided to rent a cabin way up in northern Michigan for a week with my sister Tanya. My sister is a writer, and this was also what she needed because she hadn't written in two weeks. So off we went. It was late May and still quite chilly, but we didn't care about the weather because we weren't there for sunbathing on the beach. The cottage was rustic but recently redone, and it was located on a small pond but was surrounded by thick woods. Our cottage was the last one down a long dirt road. The cottage owner had put in several really nice long trails because if not then nobody was enjoying the woods the first day we were unloading our luggage from the car and a young guy and his mom walked up the driveway they introduced themselves and said they owned the house a little way down the road and they went for walks a few times a week for exercise past the cottage the mother linda mentioned that her husband had passed away a few years earlier and of course i told her that I lost my husband, Josh, a few months earlier as well. Linda looked so sad for me, but her son, Brendan, had a smirk on his face, which really creeped me out. Linda seemed to notice this as well and said, Okay, let's leave these ladies to unpack, and then said their goodbyes. I was unnerved, by the way. Brendan looked at me, and I noticed he kept looking back at me as they walked away. On the first day, we just hung around the cabin. The next day I went for a walk alone so Tanya could get some writing done. I chose the path the owner said was the easiest. 
I had been walking for ten minutes when I heard the sound of a small animal moving through the underbrush, maybe something the size of a rabbit. So I stopped to listen, and when I stopped, the rustling stopped. I happened to glance back, and I saw the shape of a human standing behind the thicket. I thought it was Brandon, so I turned and kept walking. I was almost halfway, and I'd see a tree about thirty feet in front of me, but completely surrounded by the same thicket. I saw what again I perceived to be a naked Brandon. I couldn't see clearly because he was shrouded in darkness, but I saw him perched on the bottom limb of a tree, just crouched there, staring at me. I could see one hand holding the limb he was crouched on, and his other arm was wrapped around the tree trunk. But now that I look back and I know what I was looking at, I can't believe I thought it was Brandon. A day or two later, I was finally able to pull Tanya away from her laptop and we were on the porch to watch the sunset. We distinctly heard a wolf howl from at least the other side of the pond. We agreed it was really close, but we weren't too worried. We were more worried about the mother bears, as we were told by Linda and the cabin owner, that we needed to keep the bear spray on us at all times because the cubs were very young and the mothers were really protected. About ten minutes later, we heard an animal screaming. Oh, my gosh! We were both saying and covering our ears. Tanya was saying this is too close to nature for me. Then Tanya went in to use the bathroom, and when she came back, she said, What is that? and pointed to the wood line. I saw the shrubs shaking. Then an animal came out of the woods with a baby deer hanging from its mouth. The baby wasn't just a newborn. We looked at pictures showing various ages, and it was probably two weeks old, approximately. We are not country girls, so please don't get on me for being wrong. Anyway, Tanya said, No, I don't want to see this, and she went inside. I sat looking at this animal. I was fairly certain the fawn was already dead, or I would have done something. At least I'd like to think I would have. What? I don't know. But regardless, I was trying to figure out what this animal was. It was walking into the open from the woods. It dropped the fawn from its mouth. Then it started sniffing. I was fairly certain that this was a very large wolf with a case of the mange because its hair was thick around the neck like a lion's mane and it was thin to bare in spots. Its rear end was bald and I didn't even see a tail. I noticed it looked almost deformed because the back end sat way lower than the front. The animal seemed almost mesmerized by the fawn. It stared and sniffed at it. Then it pushed it forward or over by using its nose. Then it picked it up by the mouth and started shaking its side to side viciously. Then it started biting into the midsection, and when it lifted its head to chew, you could clearly see intestines hanging out of its mouth. Now I believe I let out a sound at that point because it looked at me surprised and then ran about ten feet to the large tree. It turned around and literally stood on its back legs. Oh my gosh! I realized this was the thing I saw up in the tree. I could clearly see the eyes were rusty-colored and they were illuminated. They were glowing from the inside. It was starting to turn dusk. It just continued to stand there behind that tree. It seemed to be apprehensive a little, but it was staring at me, and then it would look towards the fawn. At one point I thought I saw it lift its lip and the whole muzzle started to vibrate like it was trying not to bare its teeth. Finally. It got down on all four feet and started walking slowly to the fawn. 
When it was almost there, it swung its head in my direction and let out a low, menacing growl. At the same time, it bared its teeth. This animal was at least 400 pounds. It could be even bigger, but I'm afraid that the naysayers will call me a liar. This animal was at least three to four times as big as my German Shepherd. All the way around its head was huge. But what, what really terrified me was when it sneered at me and went down for the foam. Its teeth were at least three inches long, sharp and jagged. When it got to the fawn, it picked it up in its mouth and took off at a fast slope. We didn't leave for walks after that. We barely left the cabin. When we did leave the last day, we drove over to that tree, and I got out and stood beside where it stood, and I can say without a doubt it was well over six and a half to seven and a half feet tall. We drove past Linda's house, and on second thought, I asked Tanya to turn back around. I wanted to tell them what we saw. Linda was genuinely concerned and seemed shocked to hear what we saw. She appreciated that we thought enough to stop. When we got home, we called the landlord, and he said straight away that we were warned to carry bear spray. So I just left it at that. I figured he thought we wanted our money back, and that wasn't the case. So that's our story. I'm pretty sure it wasn't a Bigfoot.